Welcome to One Sweet Dream, a podcast where we explore the dream that was and is the Beatles. Welcome to what is turning into a bit of a Ram extravaganza. To mark the album's 50th anniversary, I put together a multi-part episode to celebrate all things Ram. Happily, I have the fantastic and amazing Dr. Duncan Driver to do it with me, which has been great fun because we are both a little Ram mad. Would you say that's accurate, Duncan? Yes, yes, I'd say that I'm happy to own that I am Ram mad. Well, I'm delighted to have you here. Oh, delighted, but are you Monkbury Moon delighted? <laughs> when am I not Monkbury Moon delighted? <laughs> well, I think we both think that Ram is a superb and important album, so it deserves to be vindicated, celebrated, and treated like the work of art it is. So Duncan and I explore deeply in part two of this episode. But to kick us off, I thought I would let somebody else who was there with Paul and Linda set the stage for our exploration. I had the great fortune of speaking to Eric, the Norwegian, Wangberg, about his experience working on RAM. Wangberg was in a unique position in that he was alone with Paul for a couple of months while Paul was putting the finishing touches on RAM. So he had the ability to observe and collaborate with Paul at that time. Although Eric was credited with being the mixing engineer, as you'll hear, Eric's contribution extended well beyond the usual role of mixing engineer. He was a sounding board, co-sound producer, trusted second opinion, pet therapist, and partner in crime in helping Paul and Linda create something spectacular to put into the world. I think Eric paints a vivid picture of Paul and Linda at that time. He portrays Paul as an artist that was defiant and free. He provides dimension to Paul in this period, and very few people can give that kind of insight, as Paul and Linda were so insular at that time, so it's significant. Would you agree, Duncan? Yes, I would. To pick up on one of your words, vivid, I think that's a good description of the way he remembers the time. He he speaks, at least in um, quite striking and specific vignettes that are, are visual in nature, yeah. which is perhaps unusual given that he's remembering the making of a, an album. Right. And I think his portrait of Paul actually challenges the way that he's usually portrayed in this period. So I think it really... Uh, sets the stage well for the points that we want to make about Ram in part two of this episode. So here we go with what is, for once we dream, a relatively short episode, a baby Ram episode, a lamb episode, if you will. 
with the lovely Eric, the Norwegian, who I actually caught up with at his house in Sweden. And don't forget to buy our children's book, Where in Sweden is Eric the Norwegian? <laughs> Found it once we dream. <laughs> Hello, Eric the Norwegian. Where exactly in Sweden are you? I'm on the west coast, on an island out in the ocean. <laughs> it sounds beautiful. It, it's very nice here. It's between Norway and Denmark on the way down, driving along Swe the Swedish coast. I love Sweden. I was in Sweden waiting for it to come to the United States in 1964, and I played in a rock and roll band. I, made, I toured all over Sweden. So tell me a little bit about your career, because we're talking about you in the capacity of uh, recording engineer, yeah. but you have obviously had a tremendous career. The reason I'm good engineer is because I'm a, a pretty good producer. I know what a record should sound like, and I know what the song should be and all that, you know? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and I've had all the hats, you know, I've been mastering and uh, doing designing covers. I assume you bring all your musicality to making albums. You know, I did the rock and roll band in Sweden. I've been everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I started. And then I wanted to study. I had come to the United States to study, but I ended up in L.A. in the music scene, you know. Well, that's really what you wanted to do, I assume. Yeah. What were you studying? Yeah. Engineering, you know, electro. But did you ever finish that? No, the music took uh, the upper hand. <laughs> when you sit in the studio with the Beatles and you ask yourself, should I go back to school now or should I continue what I'm doing? <laughs> <laughs> the answer is fairly easy, right? <laughs> right. I, I've had my name on more than 55 hit wow. records at the number one in the United States and the world over. Well, we are here to talk mostly about Ram today, so I would love to focus on how you got to meet Paul, and I think, didn't you work on the White Album? Well, I first met Paul McCartney during a session that I did with the Beach Boys when we were recording their album, Smile. And then a year later, I guess that was in 68, we did the mastering of the White Album in the, in the same studio. But then George Harrison was running the show. I remember reading Paul and John and George Martin were in the studio for the last 24 hours trying to get it completed. Uh, and then it was actually George Harrison who came to L.A. The way I heard the story is that they tried mastering it at Capitol. But the Beatles were not happy with the sound, so they came to us because we had a fairly good uh, reputation. And we did it there. And then George was said he was in charge, you know. He came with the masters, you know, and checked it every, all, everything out. What was your impression of George when you met him? He was a quiet, he's a quiet guy. And I was, I just remember him sitting in the hallway and I was just relaxing, uh, the engineers. And he was sitting there calmly and we, we spoke about, about, you know, everyday things. 
And he commented on the secretary. She had uh, she had big boobs. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, I guess he dug those. <laughs> and he commented, "Look, Eric, wow, you know." <laughs> you mean Mr. Spiritual <laughs> Harrison? Yeah, I, I whispered to him. Her name is Lena. She was busy away in the corner, you know. <laughs> <laughs> very early in my career, you know, while I was doing the Beach Boys. Okay, what happened then? then? they came in and there was a lot of talk. Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys were there and everyone was talking about everything. After a while, Paul said to Brian, hey, let's go out in the studio. I want to play you some music. So they both sat down on the same piano bench, imagining Paul McCartney and Brian Wilson yeah. sitting very close on a piano bench, yeah. trying to impress each other. <laughs> but this was the time when they were doing the, the Sgt. Pepper album. So Paul was playing songs from the Sgt. Pepper album. Yep. And Beast Boys was answering him with things from the, the, the Smile album. So then that's, you know, that's like Mozart and Beethoven sitting on the same <laughs> piano bench, trying to impress each other, <laughs> you know. Was it friendly competition? Yeah, they were friendly, they were laughing, you know. and. But some serious business when they, when they were showing each other the music. And of course, listen to this chord, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then they're bumping each, other, each other's bottoms on the bench, you know, give me more space, you know. And, you know <laughs> answered it back, you know. And, and of course, a lot of people around the town are listening, you know, and clapping. And that was fun, you know. Of course, I was listening to, to, to both Paul, you know, in my mind, Sgt. Pepper is the best album ever made. And at that time, you know, Brian Wilson's story right here is, yep. you know, kind of on the way down. So um, that was that. you thought of Paul when you met him? I must say that from the first to the last moment I knew Paul at during Ram. Yeah. They were so kind and they acted professionally in every way, you know. He's an Englishman and he behaved properly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he was nice. The way people see Paul, that's the way he is. A very natural, honest, guy he has his sides like everyone he he has an incredible temper you know and when someone pushes him or there's something something he doesn't like and i can understand that because so many people wants to get close to him you know yeah but he's, 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 a, he's a great guy great guy yeah. and he was especially great to me because he gave me so much so much responsibility during those round days this was on him to produce, and he had to produce. And so 
he was leaning on me to help. Think, Eric, what do you think? Should we do one more take? And, you know, what can the, this knob do for me on the console? And, uh, <laughs> and he lifted, you know, the whole thing to me, the sequencing on the album. And he says, Eric, mix it the way you want it. I mean, he, he trusted me all the way, you know. And he has never done that with anybody else. He always is in charge of everything that happens. And it's interesting because Paul McCartney is a, a fairly famous control freak, you know, about about his work. He's a great musician, a great artist, and they usually like to have control of every detail. I just want to add about him being detailed and one wants to master every detail in his recordings. He did that. I mean, he had started recording in New York, and when he came to L.A., he wanted to redo much of it. He wasn't happy with what other people had played, you know? So he picked up the guitar and and the bass and and redid things so he could get it exactly the way he wanted. I mean, he's very detailed that way and, and strict. I think the fighting with the Beatles the nervousness of being able to continue a career as an artist. A lot of changes in his life, and to have me there helped him. When you listen to Ram, there's a lot of joy in it. The sound of Ram, to me, is the sound of somebody who has gone through something, but has emerged, uh, come out the other side, you know, and is building again. And there's a lot of fun and joyousness on the album mixed with anger and heartbreak. Was that the sense that you got from the album as well? I think that's well described. I think he was happy and the songs were glad because he was free. He didn't have to listen to other members in the Beatles about what should be good and what should and all that. He he was free to to make his own music. And so he, he uh, he flowered. He took it, his own music to its fullest potential. And of course he was mad, you know, in the, about the Beatles things and John Lennon and all that. So that, it was a mixture of things. But the, he was very concentrated on the music in the studio, and so was I, despite all the, the noise around us, you know, in the newspapers, and, you know the fans outside the studio. And he was like so concentrated on the music, he forgot all about the Beatles trouble and all that. It was just him, uh, Linda, and me in the studio. That was it, in, in two or three months, you know, alone. And uh, Linda just came and went, so it was mostly both just Paul and me, you know? Wow. You can see uh, during this his difficult time how it, uh, how it was for me, you know? It, it was a tremendous responsibility, but I didn't take it that way. I had fun too. You know, we had fun together. Oh. Yeah, we we wanted to show the world, and I wanted to help him. You know, let's do just as good as the Beatles, and that was in my mind. You know. Yep. I like doing uh, crazy things with music. I hate bands that just play a song and they they go off stage. And that's the record, you know. Right. I like magic. A record has to be bigger than life. Right. And it, yeah, it also has to be timeless. When you were working on Ram, did you know at the time you were working on a great piece of work? No. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> 
not to brag, you know, but, but I hear that more and more the more the years go by. People come back to Iran. And I, I think it has to do with Paul's uh, situation, life situation at that point. It was so blatantly honest. The album has been called lightweight and not deep. And the thing that surprises me is Paul is so transparently honest on the album and it was almost entirely missed. Yeah, and you know, I understand the, the experts after the album came out and they were saying, no, this is no good. I mean, everyone was waiting for a new Beatles album because of the energy of Paul alone against the four Beatles. This, it's a whole different game, you know. So it took people a, a while to, to absorb Paul's um, solo career. Yeah, I think he was trying to forge a new sound that was separate from the Beatles, and maybe it was just unusual, not the expected. But yeah, well, he, he wrote the music at the farm. It's, it's a different story than being in the middle of London, being a Beatle. It was family life. It was his appreciation of being able to come home to himself and his family. You know, everything had been about the Beatles. And finally, he could be with Linda and they had their own place and, and their own life and their own music. Of course, their kids. So it's, it's all about that. It's an appreciative situation for him, I think, in life. I wanna give me a good night's sleep Living in a home in the heart of the country At the same time, there's, there's electricity there, you know, because the difference between that and his nervousness about making it as an artist is huge. You can imagine, what do I do after the Beatles? The whole world was waiting. And then he was criticized for taking Linda along with him, his wife, on the record, you know. <laughs> right. She can't sing, you know, and so it, it was a tough, tough situation. He did it marvelously. I mean, being so close to him and doing this with him, uh, he did it marvelously. Like a gentleman. I mean, he didn't throw things you know, <laughs> and get mad. He didn't cry. No nerves. Yeah, I've, you know, I've been with so many artists in the studio, and a lot of them get nerves. Oh, I can't sing today. I'm so hoarse, you know. Yeah. And many excuses. Oh, can you buy me a bottle of champagne? I need to relax, you know. But Paul wasn't like that. He was just very straight ahead. Well, he wanted me to have that black watch Scotch whiskey. <laughs> it had to be sitting on the shelf, and, and he mixed that with Coca-Cola. So that was his type of drink. And uh, of course, he smoked a little dress sitting on the floor with his legs crossed. <laughs> <laughs> well, fair enough. A little bit of scotch, a little bit of grass uh, sounds appropriate <laughs> given the situation. These sessions are being spun or people are talking about them is that this was a period where he couldn't make any decisions and was tinkering. It sounds like you are telling a different story. You know, when a creative spirit becomes free, that's what happened with him there, if you ask me. And that's the space. His spirit was totally free. And that's what people miss, I think. His later albums became, to me, very planned. But 
Ryan was like, uh, his spirit was free. He didn't, uh, he just made music. He felt like things he liked himself to do, you know. Incredible. Listen to Monkberry Moon Delight, the way he sings. I mean, it's out of this world. Are you saying that he was just having fun as an artist at that time in, in L.A.? I, I guess you can read Paul in different ways, you know. I, this was a difficult period, and he was just setting out doing something new, being a solo artist, going in different angles, you know, and that's what Paul did. But at the same time, the songs he wrote, they were genuine, they're, you know, real. Right. Felt, and it, it, it was honest. If anybody accuses him of being bitchy towards John Lennon, so be it. That was in there too. He's honest. He's open. It's real. That was his real situation at that time. He made the music he felt like at the time. And uh, his spirit was free. I want to underline that because, you know, nothing constructed. It just came out the way it did from his inner soul, you know. It can't be better than that. That's what I hear in the album, too, is him just being loose and free, and and you can hear it. It's very authentic. So, yeah. So when you were working with him, you said that he was very focused. Tremendously focused. He was very open with me, too. I would say, Paul, what is the matter today? Uh, I haven't been able to finish the lyric to the backseat of my car, and here we are to record it, you know? I said, no, well, that's too bad. And then he looked at me, and I was, you know, kind of shocked. I said, well, we, you know, we have to record something. <laughs> and then he broke out into laughter, you know. He was <laughs> kidding me. But there was some honesty. It was just ad-libbing. And so Shabbat Shankar think a bong, bong, bing, bong. And then we had to, you know, we had to take one syllable at a time and wow. record, you know. Oh, boy, we were worn out, both of us. We were so tired, we both laughed. He's <laughs> so honest, you know. I had him opening the door. We ordered pizza one time, and he opened the front door to, to get the pizza from the guy delivering. And the guy delivering saw Paul's face, and he just dropped everything in, on the sidewalk, <laughs> you know. I mean, what do you do when you all of a sudden face to face with Paul McCartney and <laughs> you drop things. <laughs> That's what you do. Well, tell, tell me, tell uh, me you know. about your experience like that. When you first met, you said that he was quite open with you and friendly. What were your first impressions when you met him? Very professional, in fact. I mean, it's very professional. No big smiles. Or, I mean, he was pleasant and nice and kind and all that, but very straight ahead and professional. And, uh, and I dug that because it didn't, it didn't put me in any difficult situation. I knew what I had to respond to, you know? Right. I, I, th- I think again, too, he didn't show that to me, but uh, he must have had nerves during this period with everything that was going on, you know? Yeah, yeah. We had, we had so many fans and people around the studio, I guess it was Derek Taylor, you know, called the radio stations and said, can, can you please put on the air that Paul McCartney is in, he and Linda is in ha- Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a big lie to get people away, you know. You know, the rumor went that he was in L.A. recording. 
so, but, you know, I mean, and we got so many presents in the studio every day from fans, you know, teddy bears and cakes and flowers. But there was a lot of pressure on him. Yeah, I know. And unfortunately, he would lose his temper once in a while. At one point, we had a, I shouldn't name names, but we had a very fine musician in L.A., knocking on the door. I went to open and I, of course, know these guys. And he said, Eric, do you think Paul would be interested in having me play on this record? You know? Mm -hmm. And I said, well, I'll speak to Paul and ask. And so I went in and talked to Paul and asked him. And Paul said, tell they got to fuck off. Oh. Oh. <laughs> I mean, so he was very sensitive to to anything pushing on him. He just wanted us to be alone and lock the door and let's work on the music. Fuck everybody else. <laughs> well, fair enough. <laughs> That's interesting because you portrayed the three of you guys as just being really alone, but that was by choice. You know, Paul could have had a million musicians and a producer, you know, so it was a choice. Of course. And he wanted to do this himself and he found me and, and uh, that combination would worked for him. I think he had had enough with people around him. He wanted to be alone and concentrate on the end results. You saw the interactions between Paul and Linda. What was your impression of them as a couple at that time? Oh, she had a watchful eye on him all the time. Really? <laughs> she, she would come every day and bring food and, and, and whatever Paul had asked for, you know, because we worked pretty long hours. And he had booked the studio 24-7, so there were only him in the studio. She brought the food and, and with a nice smile and, oh, what a beautiful human being. They were close. They were very, very close. If you were to be there, you would see that millions of people are pushing on you and in a way of wanting to have more of, of your music and of you and interviews and autographs and concerts. So they, that's why I think they moved to a farm. <laughs> yeah. I would have done the same thing, you know, way out in the country with lots of land around them. And Linda was very watchful, you know, and I was curious about Beatles and Paul and I talked a lot in the breaks and stuff. And, and, and I wanted to ask about Beatles. Uh, and he, he would gladly tell me, you know, about, about different things. And, but then Linda started, started hearing that they were talking about Beatles. And she got so mad. <laughs> she says, yeah, because no more Beatles. She says, no more Beatles. We are looking ahead. It's Paul McCartney. So straightforward, no backwards Beatles, you know. Oh, <laughs> so wow. Even, Linda didn't allow Paul to talk to me about the Beatles. And, and he, he would listen? He yeah, would... yeah, yeah. He listens. He was... He was... <laughs> <laughs> So just to tell you about the relationship, I guess I had asked, you know, I was, I was curious like everyone else yeah. you know, about the Beatles and the breakup and all that. Yeah. But I, I never got to know more about that because he was silent. You know, he had sipped his mouth. He respected her, you know, and they had a good relationship. Were they especially <laughs> affectionate? Or... Oh, yeah. I, I don't know if you've noticed on the front of the album, in the border, you can read Lily, L-I-L-Y. And that means, Linda, I love you. Abbreviated. 
so I was mixing long-haired lady. And Paul had a habit. I was sitting by the console, you know. Paul would put his head, stand behind me, and put his head next to my head. Yeah. So he could hear precisely what I heard in the mix. Yeah. When we did Long-Haired Lady, which is, of course, a song about Linda. Mm-hmm. And I mixed, and when we did the final mix, I turned around to look at his face, like saying, you know, Paul, what do you think, you know? I yeah. turned around, and tears were running down his chin. You know, he was crying, you know. That's how much he loved Linda. lot of emotion in my in my mixes i feel it in my heart and in my bones he felt that and it's a beautiful song about linda you know when i saw his tears i said that's the mix the sound of it is absolutely incredible to make a song and make a hit is like making a baby you know mm-hmm. it's like a, a new baby coming to the world and at that moment he felt the birth of something he had envisioned and worked hard to achieve yeah he heard long-haired lady for the first time finished. And it was so satisfactory that, you know, he, he cried. You've said that Paul is a very sensitive artist. Was that your impression? He doesn't project sensitivity in, in the normal way we think of it. But he's, of course, very sensitive. I mean, look at the way he plays his bass, you know. He, he plays harmonica. He ukuleles and pianos and guitars and drums. I mean, a musician like that is sensitive. There's no way around it. He feels his notes and music. It's growing in him. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I think of of music as nature, you know. It's about lots of flowers and birds and treasure. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a very romantic vision of music. So you say that not in the traditional way of projecting sensitivity. So did he come off as fairly confident or cocky or any of those kinds of things? No, he was just relaxed and confident. And I must say, I was constantly surprised by him not commenting anymore about my work. He accepted everything, you know? I worked quite a bit on, on the Uncle Albert and Admiral Hall sitting with I had to cut things and, you know, lots of edits and sounds and uh, thunder and right. all that. <laughs> yeah. and that's something I brought to the table. I said, we need thunder. And I, I called <laughs> Universal Studios. I need a movie sound. <laughs>
we worked during the day like this. He called me in the morning and said, Sir, can you, you put that on the machine, this song, and today we're going to mix this, or I'm going to make sing on this, or play on this. And so I worked alone before they came each day. You know, I maybe yeah. started 10 in the morning. And he would arrive like 12 or 1, you know, yeah. just to prepare everything. And I mixed to Michael Alban. I said, here, this is the greatest little song, you know. And everything was fine. He said, except, oh, that's great. I mean, that's... One comment, you know, I would like a little less reverb on the trumpet in the beginning. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, nothing more than that. Yeah. He could have commented on a million things. He never did really criticize, you know. I'm trying to impress with my work. I sit down and do a mix, and I say, damn, I'm going to show them a mix. I'm going to show them a record, you know? So yeah. that's my attitude, you know? And I think that he registered that. I said, Jesus, Eric is good. He <laughs> didn't comment on it like that, but he just accepted it, you know? Well, that, and that says a lot. That's why he... He trusted me to do all these things alone yeah. more and more as the project went on. That's a huge compliment because from what I understand, he's incredibly picky and perfectionist. Yeah, yeah. he's not easy when it comes to the music, I, I promise you. He's very exact. He knows what he wants. He is criticized for that. Of course. Imagine being the world's best musician, jazz or blues or whatever, and you're invited to play with Paul McCartney. And Paul says, can you play this? Do, 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 do. And the other guy starts going, you know. And Paul said, no, no, no. Do, 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 do. And so he had to play exact those notes. Right. Of course, the musicians hate that, <laughs> you know. <laughs> they can't be creative. But on the other hand, Paul's got a vision, I guess. Paul is, to be, uh, you know, he, he writes symphonies, you know. He, he, he is simple, you know, in his, in his way of, of writing music. But it's so, it's so creative, you know. Yeah. Boy. What did you think of his voice? I mean, when I listen to the album, I think his, he's at, in top form. What was your impression? Were you impressed by his singing? Oh, yeah. No one has impressed me more than that. And I've had a lot of artists in the studio. He always took things on the first take. I mean, that's almost unheard of, you know? Most people need a few takes to get warm and, and get into it. He always just sang the song and that was it. I mean, I couldn't even set the dials before he was finished. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I, had to, I had to excuse myself. I said, Paul, please, please, I, I, I need a few more bars, you know? <laughs> <laughs> At that time, he was incredibly warm, you know, all the time, and and, and all these different uh, songs and melodies. He was warmed up at the right age, you know, and, and he had a lot of energy, you know. Yeah. And what did you think of Linda singing? She never sang alone, you know. That's the key to Ram. Paul would always stand next to her, right behind her, singing his melody into her ear. So she would hear what he sang and then sing along with us, like a dual kind of singing. But he backed off enough. He could move back and forth from her to make the kind of blend between the female and male voices he wanted to hear. Well, and that's interesting. Very intelligent, you know. Yeah, I love the combination of their voices.
and then so I said, well, how are you doing? And so I said, so have you practiced? Have you practiced? <laughs> Just a kid, yeah. kid him, you know. <laughs> yeah. and, and he was again open and fine. I said, yeah, Eric, Eric, I practiced. I practiced. he and linda practiced a lot you know at home before coming to the studio he didn't he didn't waste studio time i promise it was very effective did she seem nervous or did she seem like she was having fun when she was recording well she was serious (laughs) you know she took it seriously and she was concentrated of course, when you get results, yeah. you know, in the studio, you, you love it and you smile and you hope you jump up and down. Was he happy with her singing? Of course he was happy with her singing because he would ne- never have accepted anything else. So he didn't go up until she did it right, oh. the way it should be. So uh, the end result is that he was happy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's a very, very, very unusual combination, the two of them. The sound, yeah. I love it. Because he's so smooth at that period. His voice is so amazing. And I like the fact that hers is a little bit less smooth than his, you know? I assume that's what he was looking for, is that kind of perfect and imperfect combination. It makes it a little bit uh, rocky, you know, rock and roll. (laughs) Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, it should be some edge. It should be some... Like the bass player in Rolling Stones never tunes his bass correctly because he wants it to be... uh, you know, off. Yes. That's rock and roll. Right, <laughs> right, exactly. So you told an interesting story about Paul borrowing your dog. Oh, yeah. I was married to an American woman at that time, and we had a dog, and uh, he was always snuffing in the carpet, so we called him Snuffy. <laughs> it's a poodle. And, and she would come and visit, too, at the, in the studio once in a while, you know. And Paul discovered that we had a dog, and he said to me, Eric, can I borrow your dog while I'm here in L.A.? <laughs> oh, I miss my dog so much, you know. And of course you can borrow him, I said, you know, and he borrowed Snuffing. <laughs> and I guess Paul at that time lived in J. Paul Getty's house in Malibu, you know, <laughs> <laughs> with servants and nice food every day. And... and uh, Paul didn't like his name. He called him Henry. Hen- oh, my Henry. God, Paul. And uh, he was with him in the studio and sat beside him, and, and Henry would see me behind the glass in the control room and started barking. That's happening on one of the songs, Ram On, in the beginning. But I cut, I, I, I cut that out. But anyway, so I got to, and when, the, when we had finished Ram together, I got the dog back. He wouldn't listen to his name. Because, <laughs> you know, I said, it's not fair he didn't come. I would have to change the name to Henry because Paul had called him that. Oh no! And he did, and yeah, and he didn't eat dog food. He had steak every day. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh no! So the dog, yeah, yeah, the dog had been completely unruly, you know. Why did Paul want your dog? Was it like a pet therapy animal, or does he just love to have dogs around? I think he's a dog, dog uh, lover. You know, I mean, he likes animals. You know, I do too, by all means. So that worked out fine. <laughs> well, it's a little bit weird to borrow somebody's dog, though. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I was a bit surprised when he asked, you know. But I, of course I said yes, you know. 
dog didn't recognize me when I, I got it back. <laughs> did he have him in the studio with him when he was recording, or did you guys have him there during the day? Yeah, I, yeah on and off, and Linda would probably have him on the leash when she came visiting, you know. <laughs> they stole your dog. <laughs> <laughs> and then one day we were doing Ram on, he was sitting, Paul was sitting out there, he was going to sing. And the dog was sitting, discovered me behind the glass, you mm. know, in the studio. And he started with, woof, 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 woof. <laughs> Hi, like, Dad. Daddy, 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 daddy. <laughs> you know. And Paul would say, shh, I would, I would go and get on the talk back and say, shh, shh, let it happen. You know, but I cut it out on the album. Did you get any sense of how he was feeling about John at that time? Because there are a couple of fighting songs towards John. They grew up together. And when people grow up together, it's like family, you know? Yeah. So deep inside, everything was okay, you know? But I think when when your family and something that you don't like happening between the two, what happens is that uh, you can get real angry, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I could get real angry at my dad, you know? Yeah. <laughs> More angry at him than a stranger. Oh, yeah. And uh, Yeah, so... I think there was both, it was like a love-hate kind of thing. And uh, the impression I got from Paul, I guess it was like that, because you know, we had the weekend off, and the Monday morning I said to him, so what's, uh, what you been doing this weekend? He asked me the same, you know. And he, he told me, I think I've been up at the Canadian border meeting with John. John couldn't come into the United States at that point, you know, because of the drugs mm-hmm. situation. <clears throat> so I guess they met and they talked, and I think all was well deep inside, of course, you know. I mean, those guys, you know, they must have loved each other, you know, and they respected each other, of course, you know. And so I think in the way inside, everything was okay. But they were bitter and hate, the hate, you know, was there because of the business aspects of it all. Did he ever talk about this or is this just the sense that... No, no, never, never. Like I said, Linda didn't want him to talk. (laughs) Right. Why was that? Do you think she just didn't want him to go get emotional and wanted him to stay focused? It's easy to imagine because they've been talking Beatles, Beatles, Beatles all the time. Yeah. And then when the problems started appearing, they were so tired and worn out of talking about the Beatles and all the problems. Yep. So Linda said, enough is enough. Now we're going to concentrate on Paul's career uh, as a solo artist, and that's it. No more Beatles talk. Right, <laughs> right. That's the way I see it. Straight ahead. <laughs> yeah, well, that and that was probably very good advice on her part, you know? Move forward. Yeah, especially in the studio now. You know, that's when she took a hold of him in the in his neck, kind of saying, "Hey, you listen to me. No more Beatles," because the studio is like a church to me. Yes. You know, you know, he's the priest, and he's, he's, you know, speaking to the whole world through his music. Yes. And so it should be holy. I mean, it should be treated with respect. That space. And that's what she meant, I think. No more Beatles talk in this room because we're making Paul McCartney's music. Fair enough. You know? Fair enough. Very smart. Yes. Yeah. Did she come off as tough in a way? Like, it did, 
not as in mean or bitchy or anything like that, but I'm always surprised that she seemed to have sort of a core of toughness. A determined woman. I mean, she knew what she wanted. She saw things clearly. Yeah, a bright woman and a nice, I get tears. And the relationship with Paul. We have we have contact and uh, we've met. And he called me and said, Eric, I need you to write words on my new Super Deluxe Ram album. This was in 2012. Yes. And that came out. Yes. A huge book about Ram, you know. And so my words are in that album, you know, and I'm very proud. Well, you should be uh, proud. It's tr- it's a tremendous album. Yeah, and then, and, and then I have written a book, you know, where I have a few chapters about Paul. And I, I contacted Paul. I said, Paul, now it's your time to, you know, can you write a, a, a letter that I can have in the book, you yep. know? And I said, of course. So in my book, it opens with Paul's letter to people telling about me. I have David Foster ending the book, so... That's impressive. Two great artists. So let me ask yeah. you. Let me ask you about the sequencing, Eric, because that's the sequencing is incredible. Now, the fact that you did a reprise of Ramon is very Paul to do that. It, that was similar to what he had done with McCartney and with Sgt. Pepper. That was Paul's idea. I mean, we recorded it, of course, once, but we we recorded it again with some some differences. So that I made a different mix, you know, of yeah. the, the ram that went on the flip side. You started with too many people. Hey, can you answer? Nobody knows what Paul says right at the beginning. Is it piss off cake or what? <laughs> Do you have any idea? What <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. He's saying piece of cake. I would, I would guess he wouldn't say piece of cake. It doesn't make sense, you know. Right, right, right. I mean, that's the thing is people love to play up that, but he sounds a little bit just defiant. Did you <laughs> decide to open with that song because of it? No, I'm a music man, and I know lyrics, of course, mean a lot in a, in a pop song, you know, yeah. I mean, I know. But musically and engineering-wise, one is not that concentrated on the lyrics as much as the music. So it's the, I never chose the sequence on account of lyrics on Ram. It was all about music. That song, too many people, you know, ended up number one. I think it's a, a wake-up kind of song and I said hey listen to this (laughs) and I remember Paul saying Eric I want a a pal you want a wooden pal and I said what do you want with that see tomorrow and I I found this wooden pal and I put it on the floor in the studio and they started jumping up and down on it and I put a microphone down at the floor and that's what ended up with in in, uh, too many people at the end I added it at the end he wanted the whole song with this I said, there's too much much noise. Let's bring it in at the end and the climax with it. What is the sound that it gave? It's jumping on it, you know.
What was that supposed to represent? His anger. <laughs> it was, you know what I mean? Too many people, you know, trampling everywhere, you know. Yeah, he did have anger that he wanted to channel into that song. It's creative anger. I mean, yeah. it wasn't, you know, anger, anger, you know. Yeah. It was a way of displaying anger musically. It's what he did. And then, uh, again, genius, you know. Yeah. Oh, I love it. That's that's a great story. And then you finished it with Backseat of My Car, which I think is a tremendous song, and all of the detailed work and time you guys put into it really paid off. It's a bizarre song, but it's an incredible song. You know, uh, in terms of being like a love song, it's <laughs> really weird and interesting. But, I mean, I guess you decided to put it as the last song, because really, how do you end with anything but that? Is, is that what you decided? I think the song has a certain sentimentality, you know, it's a romantic uh, situation and uh, I love the rock and roll, uh, you know, the way it goes out and I cut out the orchestra and I stripped it down to the band and, you know, I clipped in the drums and the way it goes out, I mean, it's incredible. I'm proud of that part too. Yeah. Because the recording just goes on and on and on. Mm. But I put in that rock and roll break in the end, you know, throughout the orchestra. But it's a nice song to finish with. Yes. It's a little bit of romanticism, a lot of rock and roll, and, you know, it's a little bit wow. <laughs> <laughs> it really does end it with a wow. It's a like a rock and roll love song anthem, you know, so I'm glad you kept it more rock and roll. Yeah, exactly. took over work that wasn't finished all yeah. the time. So either it had come from New York or, and I kind of had to put it all together, you know, afterwards. And Paul did want to either redo th something or some songs were ready to go. And, and it was a mixture of situations. Right, okay. When Paul was finished with the album, Paul and Linda were finished, you sequenced it, you played it for him. What was your response? I can read you something. I, I said earlier that he left everything to me. Yep. And he said, call me when you're finished. And I, I had written that down because it's paint a scene for us of the moment you played the, and sequenced around for Paul and Linda. I had worked pretty hard for some days. Then finally, I dialed Paul's number and say. Now, you can come and listen to Ram. Afterwards, I lie down on the sofa in the studio with a coke in my hand, and while I wait for the world start and his wife, Poland in there quick to come, do not waste time with unnecessary nonsense, sit down comfortably in front of the speakers and cross their fingers. I'm about to press the play button as Paul raises a hand and says, let's have a whiskey and cola. <laughs> <laughs> 
I pulled ginger strings for all of us from a 12-year-old Johnny Walker bottle and mixed them with cola. This drink is Paul's favorite. Paul and Linda toast with me, put down the, our glasses, and I press play, and we're up and running. Sir and Mrs. McCartney hear their album for the first time. For me, this is an incredible 43 minutes and 14 seconds. Nobody says anything. I sit behind half-closed eyes and look for my reactions in their faces. After a while, they come with small outbursts of joy. At least that's how I experience it. Then the last notes of the back seat of my car die out. We believe we can't be wrong. No, no, no. We believe that we can't be wrong. I still there with my eyes half-closed. Is it okay to be nervous? Paul McCartney had put his creation in my hands. Mm -hmm. What if he does not like the order of the songs? Or more importantly, what if he thinks the choice of songs to be included of Ram is not good? You manage this, Eric. Paul shouts as he and Linda wrap their arms around each other as they jump up and down with joy. After they finish hugging each other, the turn comes to me. I discover the tears flowing from them both. They are happy and satisfied with the results. The compliments they pour out on me are almost too much. Of course, I'm relieved. Yes, I'm no less happy than, than Paul and Linda. And in the end, we all three stand with our arms around each other, recording my part, mixing and editing Ram, and on top of it all, being given total creative freedom by Paul along the way. Jumping up and down, tears flowing. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's so sweet. I love hearing the fact that they loved it so much. And congratulations on, on producing something that they absolutely loved. I'm humble about it. You know, it's, it's just an honor that I ended up with, with that production. It's incredible. It's a life, you know. It tells a story. What story do you think it tells? Music was the biggest thing on earth. It was bigger than television and sports and movies altogether. Music was the big thing. Yeah. It ruled the world. And this ruled... The Beatles and McCartney and, you know, of course, Beach Boys and others, they were the biggest on earth. They were gods. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so this album tells the story of the times. Hmm. It's in a, in a very personal way, and Paul is the person. And after the breakup of the Beatles and coming back to family life and and then be given freedom to create precisely what he felt without having anyone else comment. He did what he wanted to do, you know? Right. It was free, and it just came out from this incredible hero being. It makes me a little bit upset to know that, you know, they loved it, you loved it, you guys were all so happy, and then it was absolutely destroyed by the critics. Did that bother you? No, not at all. And, you know, so many times one discovers in the music world, you know, constantly the experts are wrong about what the public likes. I, I did the music to Grease, you know, the movie? Yep. That was slaughtered. It was <laughs> slaughtered. And in review, that is the most sold album of just about of all times, you know? Yeah. So the experts, they're, they're wrong many times. So what did you think when you saw the reviews? Did you just 
think, well, they don't know what they're talking about, or someday they'll they'll understand what we were doing, or... They're... Yeah, the latter of what you said is true. I have a tendency to delve into my mixes, uh, maybe sometimes too much. I mean, I, I get all the way in there, and I pick, <laughs> bring with me all of the details I yeah. can gather. There's so much to it that it takes a while for the listener to get used to what they're listening to. Yeah. It's true. It's not like a bubblegum song that you hear it once and then you know it. You know? Yeah. It's something you can. It's something that grows on you because the more you hear it, the more you hear. Mm-hmm. I mixed like a lot of stuff with Diana too, Diana Ross, you know. Yeah. Touch me in the morning and do you know where you're going to? And that's also death stuff, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Did you ever hear what Paul thought of the reviews and how he reacted to it? Did he know that he had created something great? Or do you think he would have been really hurt by the reviews? He was so busy of making a career, so I didn't, I don't think he, he thought about it too much. You know, Beatles had been criticized too, you know. So he just went onwards. And I remember him in the studio and we were talking and and so I said to Paul, what's next for you, you know? Yep. And I said, I want to create a band. I want to start a band, and I want to travel around in, into small towns uh, with a little wagon and, and hold concerts for a limited amount of people and enjoy life, you know? That's how Wings, Wings started. To, and so he was busy uh, continuing after Ram. And he called me, you know, a little bit later, I says, Eric, I made a new album. It's called Wildlife. And I says, can you master it? <laughs> you know. Did you master so I mastered that? Wild, wildlife and and get on the right thing. One of the songs from the Ram period yep. ended up on Red Rose Speedway. And, yeah. You know. <clears throat> I just want to circle back to something that you said that was pretty intriguing about Paul meeting John at the border. Did he tell you anything about that? Because that's pretty amazing that in 1971. He made it again very short because he didn't want to speak to me about Beatles because of Linda, you know. <laughs> <laughs> he was afraid of the I mean, rap. I got the, I got the feeling he kind of kept things to himself about that. He did mention, you know, I've met John on the border and, you know, Eric, we have, we have a lot of business to discuss, you know. I, I mean, it took that kind of a tone. I mean, I was interested in understanding Paul's mindset at that time. How is a person in survival mode? You really You're think he was... concentrated, full of energy and uh, looking straight ahead, knowing what to do. That's how he was engaged, you know. Yeah. He wanted to survive as an artist. So that took his 100%. Without, without being unrelaxed, he was relaxed, you know. Right. He's so confident in music that, you know, he's, he's always relaxed in music. It's amazing. Does he know how good he is when he starts playing music? I don't think he would think about it that way. He knows he's good, you know, of course. Yeah. But he is an instrument. I can tell you one story. We're doing, I guess that was get on the right thing, you know, yep. doing the vocal. Yeah. And uh, all of a sudden in the middle of the song, I mean, in the studio, it demanded of me to have two studios. I said, why do you need two multi-track setups? I've never experienced anything like it. And I says, Eric... <laughs> One thing is about doing RAM. The other thing is I might come up with ideas while I'm doing RAM. <laughs> and, I need to, and I need to compose or write or record, record some other music. Wow. I said, okay. 
So he had two setups. We had that. So in the middle of singing Ram, some song, he throws off his headset, runs over to the piano, and I had to jump on the record button, and he started singing a whole other musical piece. <laughs> now, how can one person sing one piece of music and then compose another or think of another musical piece at the same time? I mean, it's more than genius. Uh, that is insane. How, how is it possible? And that's what he did, you know? Pong, pong, you know? Singing this over and doing it, and then yeah, something totally different. <laughs> wow, that is insane. So that, that's Paul McCartney in a nutshell, you know, magic. You've obviously worked with a lot of great musicians. Is there, what is different about Paul? He's so self-contained. Other musicians, they're specialists in, in an instrument or a song or... But he's, he's self-contained about everything. I mean, he can do anything, you know? He plays all the instruments, and he composes, he writes lyrics, and all kinds of music. Yeah. A amazing, you know? So it's almost as if he doesn't need anybody else. You know? <laughs> yeah. But he, he's like, I said, what's your next album? Oh, Eric, I'm dreaming about bringing a motorcycle into the studio and record with it, you know? <laughs> I mean, that's rock and roll, you know? And of course, Red Rose Speedway came out, you know? So that's what happened. So I get the sense that he was getting increasingly inspired while working on RAM. Do you think that's... He was looking forward, believe me. When you're working on a creative project and you're really into it, that's what happens. You get other ideas, you get excited, you get energized, you know? Yeah, absolutely. How much do you think Linda was participating in these ideas? Ram is a lot of Linda, you know. She she was she wrote, uh, you know, uh, some of the songs with him, and the ideas. I'm sure she came with ideas and and her gave her thoughts on that, and this and that. So, but she did. She was very much a part of it. Right. But she didn't necessarily sit with you guys day to day, listening, going through the detail work. No, she was not into the recording bits. Right. You know? But she was out singing, and she would comment on things we had recorded. Or she was just nice, that woman. Incredible, you know. The dedication to life, you know. When she was in the music, she she always had her camera, you know. Yeah. She takes fantastic pictures. Yeah. And she took a lot of pictures of Paul and me. And she was always there with the warmth and, the, you know, she was always helpful, you know, and considerate, a good, fine human being. Could you see why Paul and Linda were a good couple? Yes, because uh, she, she watches over, she watches that everything works, you know. Well, Paul's a, Paul's a busy in his musical mind, you know. That happens to a lot of musicians, I know. It's difficult being a musician and being in real life at the same time. Why? <laughs> it's a problem. <laughs> musicians are, I guess, painters, you know, are also the same way as authors, you know. It's because their minds are at work 24 hours a day. To be a, a music artist or someone that creates huge, fantastical things on earth, they work not eight hours days, you know, most of them, they work the whole day, all the, every day. So um, they're preoccupied. I mean, he didn't want to use her to, for any purpose, of course, but she just fit in, you know, and she took interest in helping out right. to be him. As an artist, you need support, you know.
if he was with somebody who didn't take a particular interest in the music and wasn't really willing to talk to him about it, it might be difficult to have that kind of relationship. You're right about that, you know, and, and, and a lot of musicians people uh, do that mistake of marrying someone who's not musically inclined. One needs some someone at least musically interested. Yes. What was your impression about how Paul looked? I was always impressed with his silk shirts. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was always impressed with that. Uh, otherwise, I didn't think so much about it. But he's, he's a tough guy, you know, rock and roll hero. And uh, he's a little bit smaller than me. He's a rock and roller. <laughs> he's slender, you know, very slender. Yeah. And uh, loose, you know. You really bring to life the fact that he was building, he was focused, he was creatively inspired. He had a lot of other stuff going on. I mean, of course, he, he went through his ups and downs, you know, a difficult period. What everyone does that. Yeah. Nothing is a straight line. Did, did you ever see him particularly drunk or looking really upset or no. depressed? The most out of it, if I can say that, yeah. is when he said, Eric, Melinda and I will go out into the studio, we'll sit on the floor, lower the mic, and we will answer your questions. You should be the interviewer. <laughs> Ask us questions and we will answer anything you want to know. Yeah. Put on the tape and let it run. So I, I was interviewing them and they were smoking pot. Okay. When they were sitting apart and they got, and I guess maybe they had a glass of whiskey too. So it got a little bit, you know, uh, sideways. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the purpose of the, the conversation was that I was supposed to then afterwards cut segments of this conversation and put it into the music that Paul had just recorded on piano. And uh, I suggested we'll add some some sound effects. And I made these radio spots. And it was re only released in a few hundred copies for the radio station. It's a one-sided LP, very original. Yeah. Brung to you, brung to you by, it's called. <laughs> right. Yeah, it wasn't that intelligent. I didn't, you're, you're much, much cleverer than me in asking questions. <laughs> well, that's pretty funny to be put on the spot with two people that are high and sitting on the floor. Just like a, you know what I mean? I would love to hear that conversation that they had. It sounds like Paul and, and Linda just sometimes just had fun together as a couple. They had fun, you know. I know they had parties after Ramen. I was busy working afterwards, second cop, but I know they had parties, you know. They lived it up. I, I hope they had a good time in LA. I'm sure they did. Yeah. You know, you can imagine, you know, California is nice, you know. California is especially nice. At that, especially at that level coming from London, you know. Right. Yeah, I'm surprised Paul didn't spend more time in, in L.A., actually, except I assume it's a scene he didn't want to be too much a part of. Mm. No, he needs his private life. He, uh, he gives so much energy to the music and people around in, in music. He needs to have his 
private time to recharge. Yeah, that's exactly it. Right, mm. right. Well, that's kind of ideal. If I had the money he did, I'd have a place in the middle of nowhere with a bunch of horses. So that sounds amazing to me. It sounds like you're somewhere that's fairly, you said you're on an island. That sounds pretty beautiful. It's beautiful here. You know, I have the ocean in front of me in the forest. I live in the forest, but I'm by the ocean and all the animals. We have wild animals here and it's fresh air, you know. It's, it's just beautiful. They say it's the most beautiful part of Sweden. Wow. So if you're ever here, please visit. I will. Take good care of yourself and thank you very much for calling me. Thank you so much for this time, Eric. You've been absolutely wonderful to speak to. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening to this episode on Ram with Eric Wangberg. I will be back very soon with part two when Duncan Driver and I explore the album in depth. We pick up on a lot of the themes Eric mentioned in our discussion. The impact of Paul's creative freedom, the uniqueness of the album's sound, Paul's emotional honesty, and we agree that the tension between McCartney's simmering anger and his returning joyfulness does create an electricity that makes the album so unique and spellbinding. So stay tuned. Until next time. Bye.